Welcome to Cato Audio for January 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. I'm Coraline Brown. Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you, sweetie. In this month's offering, Democratic U.S. Senator Chris Murphy discusses reclaiming Article I powers for Congress. Researcher Patrick Tuohy discusses how New Rochelle, New York, began welcoming new development. And economist Richard Williams describes what the FDA has done to our food. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. We are just about a year into the presidency of Joe Biden. Uh, He made some promises relating to immigration that were strikingly different from uh, his predecessor, Donald Trump. Uh, So how's he done? And uh, specifically with respect to his remain in Mexico policy, you know, what has really changed? I'm joined by Alex Narasta, who directs immigration policy studies here at the Cato Institute, and David Beer, who is a research fellow at the Cato Institute, to talk about this first almost full year of the Biden presidency. So, Dave, I want to uh, start with you. You know, a year ago, you wrote uh, a couple of op-eds just sort of encouraging the Biden administration to go big when it comes to deregulating immigration uh, to the United States for a variety of reasons. Broadly speaking, what were your recommendations? Well, they were numerous, but uh, primarily focused on expanding access to legal immigration. Um, That's the main driver of illegal immigration. Legal immigration is a benefit to the country. And our proposals laid out a variety of ways in which we can both increase legal immigration, allow more people to immigrate, and then get the most out of immigration uh, and immigrants when they're here so they can work and we're not having people on welfare. And so uh, really those proposals uh, largely have not uh, been carried out by this administration. Um, We have seen some rollbacks of what the Trump administration has done, um, but uh, very marginal. Um, The shift has not been dramatic. And in general, uh, the administration has tried to move as slow and as uh, limited as possible on legal immigration and immigration generally. Okay. So uh, before we get into more of the substance of the Biden administration policies with respect to immigration, uh, Alex, you wrote a piece about detailing sort of what the Trump legacy is with respect to immigration. So how did immigration change from 2016 to 2021? The main way that Donald Trump affected immigration in the United States was by vastly reducing legal immigration. So if you take a look at the decline in the number of temporary workers coming to the United States in some categories, the number of lawful immigrants coming uh, to the United States, number of students, for instance, there's a fairly steady decline. It began a little bit um, prior to Trump taking office in 2016 is when it really starts to slow down. But it picks up under Trump. And then when COVID-19 happens, uh, the Trump administration uses that as an excuse to basically end all legal immigration to the United States and the vast majority of uh, non-immigrants, so like migrant workers, 
um, students, other people coming to the United States. So the the estimates are that you know prior to compared to prior to COVID, uh, the Trump administration decreased the number of uh, green cards issued by about ninety percent. They issued those people abroad by about ninety percent, and by and for temporary people coming to the United States, tourists. Uh, migrant workers, et cetera, by over 90%, by 93% uh, during that time period. So that's been the main legacy. A lot of people look at his immigration enforcement policies against currently resident illegal immigrants and people on the border. And frankly, deportations declined uh, in most years of the Trump administration. The last year in office for Trump was the lowest that we've had on record up until that time since basically the George W. Bush administration, the fewest number of people being deported. Um, he did build some sections of the wall. I'll give him, you know, that's absolutely something that he did. But in terms of removing illegal immigrants, in terms of shrinking that population, he basically had no effect and was probably the most ineffective policy. Uh, politician uh, on that score um, in decades. But what he did do and what he had power over uh, was cutting to an extent that we haven't seen in American history from one year to another legal immigration to the United States. So I saw, uh, because I uh, get an unfortunate fraction of my news from Twitter, uh, I saw a a meme, I guess, and it was Ted Cruz saying, essentially, let me sum up my immigration preferences, uh, thusly legal, good, illegal, bad. And of course, that's a perfectly vacuous statement. But um, presumably, uh, if you take that uh, at face value, Republicans should have no problem with uh, vastly increased legal immigration. But of course, that's not really the case, is it? It's not really the case. Well, first off, my sympathies for being on Twitter. Secondly, um, in terms of that meme, I'm not sure what uh, Ted Cruz has been all over the map on the issue of immigration over the years. Uh, but more recently, I just frankly don't believe that. He was instrumental in opposing a bill that would allow refugees fleeing communist China from Hong Kong coming to the United States. He has uh, supported most of the efforts in recent years to reduce legal immigration to the United States. That is the plank written into the party platform of the uh, of the Republican Party uh, in 2016 and then copied over again in 2020 is basically to cut legal immigration by about 66%. So um, that would be great if that were true. And I think you can say about most, a lot of Republicans prior to 2015, prior to 2016 or so, I think you could say that that is probably the perspective that most of them had. But as far as I can tell right now, things are in flux. And most Republicans, um, uh, perhaps Ted Cruz included in that, are much more skeptical of legal immigration than that gives it credit for. Yeah, I would just say that, uh, you know, there's a difference, really, elected Republicans are more anti-legal immigration than even their voters. Uh, it, it, it's really surprising. They're finding new ways to be restrictive on the issue of, of, of legal immigration. I, I, you know, this bill with the Hong Kong refugees, I mean, we had almost universal support um, for that. And then Ted Cruz came along and said, well, they could be spies for the Chinese. Therefore, we can't risk letting in any of these Hong Kong refugees. And it's not just refugees. Uh, you know, he's, he's opposed to high-skilled H-1B temporary workers, has a bill to slash those uh, dramatically. Um, and you go on down the list, uh, 
chain migration, you know, family-based, family-sponsored um, immigration. He's opposed to that, even though that's the bulk of immigration to the United States right now. So if you just cut that out and don't replace it with anything, you're cutting legal immigration dramatically. And that was certainly a perspective that we saw under the Trump administration. And just to cut in on this, in 2015, Ted Cruz proposed a bill to increase the number of H-1B workers to 300,000 a year, which is about um, you know, a more than threefold increase in the total numbers of high-skilled workers who can come to the United States. So this really is sort of a, a new-ish opinion for him compared to the relatively recent past. All right. So uh, Joe Biden becomes president of the United States. And um, what does he do with respect to immigration? He moves very, very slowly, um, as slowly as humanly possible, given the, the constraints of he ran on a platform that was as pro-immigrant as any politician uh, elected to the presidency in our history since Lincoln. I mean, Lincoln's really the only other uh, president who campaigned as, as being pro-immigrant and uh, to this extent. And this, I mean, far greater than Obama. I mean, Biden had a platform that laid out in detail every single immigration program and how he would expand it and make it more accessible to immigrants. Um, so, I mean, you start with the refugees we already discussed. Um, he initially resisted raising the refugee cap at all. And that was set by Trump, um, President Trump, at the lowest level it had ever been set at. And he, for political reasons, thought it was bad politics to increase the refugee cap. So he initially resisted doing that. And then finally, he caved to pressure after several months in, in May. He increased the refugee cap. At the same time he increased the cap, he said, well, we're probably not actually going to process any more refugees this year, despite me increasing this cap. And that's exactly what happened. He ended up having admitted the fewest refugees in the history of the refugee program um, in 2021. Um, you, you look at asylum. So, you know, people coming to the border to request asylum, uh, you can request asylum in two ways. Uh, the first is to cross the border illegally and, and request asylum. That's, that's the way that gets the most attention from people. The other way is to come to a port of entry and request asylum at a, at a legal, lawful port of entry. Under the Trump administration, they closed that off entirely. They said, we're not going to accept any asylum seekers at ports of entry. And that meant the only way to request asylum was to cross the border illegally. And the Biden administration has actually kept that approach, um, saying the only way to, to request asylum is to cross the border illegally. And um, that's reflected in the number of people who are crossing the border and entering the country in, a, in an illegal manner. If you were to draw lines, take a look at data during the last year of the Trump administration, the first year of Biden on legal immigration and on people coming to the United States and allowed to, I don't, I would, and you didn't know the time, you didn't know who won the election, you didn't know when a president took power or even if there was a change in power. I don't think you'd be able to tell when Joe Biden 
took office and started power. Or even if there was a change of power in that entire time period. One of the jokes that David and I have in the office is that uh, Trump's second term is going pretty well on immigration. Absolutely. You know, the other the other very important thing is the consulates abroad that process the visas. Um, most of those consulates are still not fully operational right now. Uh, they're operating at reduced capacity. They're not operate. They're not accepting applications um, from many categories of temporary workers, and so we're having these huge backlogs at the consulates. There are over five hundred thousand immigrant visa applicants um, waiting. Uh, for an interview so they can come to the United States. These are people who are going to become permanent residents in this country. Um, Pre-COVID, there was just 60,000 in that backlog. Uh, the, the Biden administration has done almost nothing to reduce that backlog. It's come down very slightly um, over the last year. Um, you look at temporary workers, temporary visa holders, those numbers are all still down. And the administration is is really not doing much more than, uh, well, let's maybe go back to um, you know, some of the processes that were under the, the Trump administration. And so not taking a, a dramatic approach to trying to fix um, these visa processing issues. And that's really what's reducing new immigrants to the United States is these visas and, and consulates abroad. And this is at a time, of course, where we have a huge labor shortage. I mean, 10 million open jobs, and we're not letting immigrants come in and fill them. Uh, Alex, you mentioned not being able to tell from the data when the Biden administration began. But of course, we can tell from uh, the charts that you guys have uh, compiled when COVID-19 began. And uh, so how did that, my sense is that that probably empowered the restrictionists uh, in, in such a way to say, well, we're going to reduce legal immigration and uh, whatever happens with COVID, we're going to try to keep it there. Most of the actions taken by Trump prior to COVID that had the effect of reducing lawful immigration were administrative actions, executive orders, some regulations. But things that could be changed pretty quickly uh, by an administration coming in that had a different opinion. Nothing permanent. What Trump took advantage of was a provisional law in Title 42, basically pushing the CDC to issue an order saying it's a health emergency and the borders are closed. And that was a tectonic shift. It was made possible partly um, by the ban on a lot of immigrants and travelers that Trump put in place in Muslim countries uh, very early on in his administration. There was a uh, very uh, terrible Supreme Court decision in Trump v. Hawaii, which basically, in, in my opinion, misread a statute and said that the president can stop immigration from anywhere in the world basically by uttering some magic words. Uh, as David here argued at the time, well, there's no limiting factor here. He can just close at any time for any reason. And, you know, it's arguable that there's limitations in the statute that allow closing the border for uh, for health reasons. But that doesn't matter because the Supreme Court will basically rubber stamp any action taken by any American president now that limits the ability of people to come to the United States. We don't have, and put it away, we really don't have immigration law anymore in this country. What we have is the rule of the president and basically 
whatever he wants. So uh, for decades, Congress delegated to the president uh, powers over trade. Um, I assume that's largely similar with respect to immigration. Yes. The administration has certainly great power over the legal immigration system. Um, but for the most part, the, the main part of permanent immigration to the United States was carried out based on numerical limits imposed by Congress in the statutes. Um, now, under since Trump and since COVID and it, continuing under Biden, we have this policy where the administration can say, we're just not going to use the caps. We're going to just discard a bunch of these visas that Congress authorized. We're, we're not going to let people from certain countries and certain places apply at all or immigrate here. Um, we're even seeing this now with the latest ban on certain African nations. Um, these are policies that basically override all of the existing statutes. So yes, we had we had restrictions before. We had interpretations of statutes, but this is something fundamentally different, where the president unilaterally is just saying, "We're not going to take anyone from this region of the world or these countries or this category of immigrants totally ineligible," um, and and that's really a break from past tradition. So in a sense, that's just a executive dereliction. We basically have. Um, you know, like a doge, which is, you know, the, the ancient dictator elected in Venice for life. This guy isn't elected for life. You know, none of these presidents are. But in terms of their power over immigration, it's basically total. It's whatever they want. The courts are not going to stop them. Now, there's differences, you know, for immigrants who are already in the United States. That's a different story. But for letting folks in from abroad, it's uh, all in the administrative agencies now. It's all with the president. And this is, I think, a consequence of the fact that there is no power in the Constitution that delegates to anybody the power to regulate immigration. This was invented in 1889 by the Supreme Court. They created something out of whole cloth called plenary power for uh, immigration, saying that Congress can do whatever it wants on this topic. And what increasingly Congress has done over time is grant more and more of that power to the president. And the courts have, with basically no exceptions that I can think of off the top of my head, um, rubber stamped that delegation of power to the president. So uh, to give you two a bit of kudos, you have been for years coming up with policies that could be fairly quickly implemented to devolve a lot of that uh, regulatory authority over immigration, if not to individual employers, to uh, states to make determinations about what they need, what their employment needs are with respect to immigration. In December of 2020, now more than a year ago, uh, you guys put together deregulating legal immigration, a blueprint for agency action. And uh, I would uh, refer people to that and uh, commend it to people if they want a detailed, highly detailed list of uh, potential policy changes. Uh, just in general, uh, if uh, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, to the extent that uh, the Biden administration has taken up any of these ideas, what were they? Well, he did, you know, was none, I would say none have been of voluntary, voluntary actions uh, on the part of this administration. He has increased the refugee cap 
That was one of our recommendations. He has the power to do that explicitly from Congress. Um, but uh, he isn't actually uh, increasing the number of refugees he's letting into the country. So he's in this bizarre situation where he's getting the pro-immigrant uh, people happy by increasing the refugee cap, but not actually letting any more refugees into the country. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, one thing that he did do it was forced by a lawsuit uh, against him, but uh, was authorized the spouses of some certain categories of temporary workers to work legally in the United States while their their uh, spouse is working at some company. This is a great change. This is a you know a very important um, uh, change in policy that will enable. Um, more economic growth by having the contributions of these spouses who are often very highly educated and highly productive um, workers as well. And one policy I want to say real quick is that David is the number one person responsible for basically getting thousands of green cards issued before they expired this year. Um, And I think you should talk just... Sure. What about that real quick? Sure. Yeah. So the administration inherited a situation where green card processing for people already in the United States, uh, these are temporary workers already here uh, uh, applying to adjust their status to become permanent residents. They have a cap on the number of, of green cards that can be issued. And the administration, when it took over from the Trump administration, they were on pace to waste uh, well over 100,000 of these uh, green cards. And, um, you know, I was one of the first people to point out that, they, you know, the pace of approvals was incredibly slow, that they were not going to use the cap. And the pace increased dramatically um, after I wrote in the Washington Post about this problem. And um, ultimately, they still wasted nearly 80,000 of these uh, green cards. Uh, but the pace of approvals in the final quarter after I um, crunched the numbers and put this out, doubled. Um, and so they increased dramatically the the pace of approvals, wasted far fewer as a result of uh, some of the stuff that we put out there. But um, that's just another example of how slow they are to act. And, um, you know, they will respond to pressure. Unlike the Trump administration, they'd be like, happy, here, let's throw all these in the trash. Uh, the Biden administration has responded in some cases to uh, pressure from the outside, but it's always slow. It's always reactive. It's always do the minimum rather than be proactive and fix the problem at the outset. And you had to point it out to them and you went to talk to them in their offices, right? And you convinced them and told them they have to get their act together and issue these. So like you had to, it's like they didn't know what was going on. The virtual office, but sure. The virtual office, over Zoom, right? (laughs) Right. And you you did that. And that is a real impact and something that, uh, you know, I'm proud of. So Dave, you mentioned uh, the labor crunch that is currently underway in the United States. Part of that is driven by uh, COVID uh, and the fallout from COVID, including massive payments to for people to not return to work when they otherwise would. Um, some of that is just people who've just decided, yeah, I'm going to, life is short. I'm going to do something else with my life. But there is that demand 
I wonder the extent to which that has changed the political calculus with respect to uh, immigration right now. I've even heard a few Democrats saying things like, oh, no, this is good, actually, because it's driving wages up, which is, you know, if you're an employer, that's a little bit of a galling uh, claim to have to sit through when you're unable to find workers to do accomplished tasks that you need accomplished in order to serve the public in the way that you want to. Um, so uh, I, guess, I guess how does uh, immigration in a, in a general sense, uh, you know, how important is it to economic growth going forward? Well, it's very important. Uh, I would say that the Biden administration largely agrees with the perspective that the labor shortage is a good thing, um, certainly a good thing for the country and for workers, um, U.S. workers. Um, it really only looks at immigration through the humanitarian perspective. Uh, it doesn't see the labor need. It's 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 fairly hostile to all of the temporary work visa programs through which employment-based immigrants to this country come to this country. So it's not as bad as, as the Trump administration uh, by any means, but it is certainly not uh, seeing immigration as like this opportunity to solve the problem of the labor shortage. Um, to the extent that it's letting people into the country, it's doing it so because either a commitment to um, family members in the United States who are petitioning for them or humanitarian concerns, it's not doing it because of uh, economic reasons. And so um, that fundamental uh, misunderstanding of the economy, seeing the labor shortage as something benefiting workers, um, even though we know that inflation is outpacing increases in wages. So this is going to make it more difficult uh, to get an expansive legal immigration policy put into effect when it, the administration's economic perspective and economic advisors are saying, don't do that, um, basically exacerbate this situation. With respect specifically to Democrats and doing reforms to immigration, I vaguely remember, uh, Alex, 2007, 2008, 2006, we had a president who seemed very interested in immigration reform, um, and it didn't happen. That's absolutely correct. And so, Even what 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 were the what were the politics there? Because because I, I I imagine that Democrats, and this is this the cynical view, would rather have the issue than fix the problem. The politics were quite different back then. When you take a look at polling of Democrats and Republicans around 2006 or so, their average opinions weren't that different on the issue of immigration. What uh, you know, you had a Republican president who supported it, and you had a lot of Democrats at the time, including uh, Senator Obama from Illinois, who was very skeptical of expanding legal immigration, threw in um, some poison pills. Uh, voted for some poison pills along with Jim DeMint and other uh, anti-immigration Republicans uh, threw in there uh, to basically scuttle some of these programs uh, that, that would have uh, killed guest worker programs in some of these bills and made them politically untenable. Uh, but there has been a radical change in at least public opinion since then. And you got to take this for a grain of salt because you got to ask, like, how good are these polls? What are you really measuring when you're measuring public opinion? How does this translate to political action? But Democrats are, you know, about 80% of Democrats think that immigration is good for the United States. 
And uh, the number for Republicans is about 35%, basically unchanged for Republicans over the next last 15 years, but radically different for Democrats. Uh, but these are Democratic voters. These aren't necessarily Democrats in Congress. And that doesn't also mean that Democrats care about this issue as number one. They don't. I mean, even people who are pro-immigration who are Democrats, it's usually not the number one issue. It's their fourth, fifth, sixth issue. And that's what I think is the basic challenge here. People who are opposed to immigration care about it a lot. People who support immigration, eh, it's not that big of a deal to them. Dave, any final thoughts? I would just emphasize that uh, there is a real opportunity for change under the Biden administration. Uh, many, we know personally, many of the uh, appointees in this administration, they do have plans that the White House uh, people are sitting on. So the political people are interfering with the policy people who are trying to get good policies put into effect. And that's that uh, give and take, the argument there is actually a good change from where we were under the Trump administration, where there was no give and take. There was no one arguing on the pro-immigrant side of things. And in this case, at least we have some voices within the administration who are urging some changes that would be beneficial. So over the next couple of years, Hopefully, we'll see the fruits of that. All right. David Beer, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. Alex Narasta, Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read uh, these two gentlemen and other uh, writers on the subject of immigration, their voluminous and ongoing work on behalf of deregulating immigration in the United States at our website, cato.org. Congress has for decades now delegated away its power to make decisions about war to the executive, with negative results for security, fiscal responsibility, and separation of powers. Chris Murphy is a Democratic U.S. Senator from Connecticut at a Cato Policy Forum. Murphy discussed why it's as important as ever to reclaim that power for the first branch of government. I'm looking forward to this discussion, and I want to thank Cato for um, highlighting uh, what I believe to be a very broken balance of power on national security matters between uh, the Congress and the executive branch. Uh, and I'm grateful that this is a moment where we have um, a Congress um, represented by Republicans and Democrats that's more engaged in this issue than at any time before during my service here. Um, it may be a little hackneyed to sort of start with a discussion of our founders when we you know, are talking about who's uh, uh, in charge of declaring war, but how can you start anywhere else? Um, the Federalist Papers get all of the attention, but in 1793, Hamilton and Madison do a, a back and forth, a series of, of essays contesting their different visions of the balance between the legislative branch and the executive branch. In one essay, Madison, who gets a lot of credit as maybe the primary driver of the ideas behind the Constitution, talks about what happens when an emergency arises that necessitates quick, rapid executive action. He's talking about military action. And he concedes that there may be limited moments in which the president has to act, but he cautions that these instances should be really few and far between, because he believes 
as most of the founders did, that Congress, um, it's really important that Congress reserve this power to decide when America interferes in the world for itself. He says this, he says, but these instances, these emergencies he's talking about, are great and extraordinary cases and should by no means be submitted to so limited an organ of the national will as the executive of the United States. Now that would pain a lot of presidents to hear them described as a limited organ of the national will, but it shows you, right, that the founders, in particular Madison, believed that there was one branch, Article I, not coincidentally Article I, that was the place where the great public debates were supposed to happen. The big decisions, especially those decisions about national security, especially those connected to these foreign entanglements that our founders thought so much about needed to happen in Congress. In another essay, in that same exchange, Madison says, those who are to conduct a war cannot in the nature of things be proper and safe judges whether a war ought to be commenced, continued, or concluded, right? Another fascinating idea that those who are in the business of conducting the war don't have the proper perspective, the proper distance to be able to make sound judgments about whether the war should be started, whether the war should be continued, or whether the war should be concluded. Our founding fathers believe that the executive branch and the legislative branch needed to share foreign policy making, but the decision about inception and conclusion when it came to war and foreign entanglements, that had to be vested in the people's branch. And in our early years, it's kind of interesting because the president you know, most often respected this investment of national security powers in the Congress. You think about some of the the earliest military engagements, the, the quasi-war with France in 1798, conflicts with the Barbary states, some of our wars with Native American tribes um, on our continent, all declared by Congress. The president withholding the decision to commit U.S. forces and resources until a decision made for by Congress. Um, in other national security matters, beyond formal war making in those early years, uh, presidents and congresses also respected this balance. Take the question of alliances. In our early years, alliances were entered into uh, mostly through formal treaties, again, requiring congressional, uh, congressional assent. Um, it goes without saying, and we're here for this reason, that over the years, this, this shift from legislative power with respect to national security matters to executive powers uh, has been substantial. Uh, clearly modern presidents, for instance, are using increasingly creative and frequent means to enter into war without consulting Congress. The pace of US military activity today um, is fairly breathtaking. Now, Americans would tell you that we were at war in Afghanistan, that we still are at war in Iraq. But in fact, we've deployed combat troops to no less than 20 nations since 2001. We've conduct, conducted at least 14,000 unmanned airstrikes in every corner of the world. Our country's military has killed almost 50,000 civilians through unmanned and manned strikes since 2001. Presidents over the last 20 to 30 years have used 
a few methods to escape from Madison's requirement that war be declared by the people's branch of government. And these methods are becoming more frequent uh, and more nuanced. First, presidents uh, often will decide that the actions of the military it takes um, does not constitute war. You find that most recently with the case in Yemen. You often find that to be the case with unmanned aerial strikes. Second, presidents often declare that the circumstances are so exigent that the president cannot come to Congress in time. Again, this was contemplated by Madison, but now these emergencies, whether they be connected to an imminent attack or they are necessary to retaliate against an attack on US forces, um, seem to come on a monthly basis. And lastly, uh, presidents now often decide that the proposed action is covered by an existing war authorization. That's part of the reason that uh, my colleague, Senator Kane, and I, or Senator Young, are pushing an effort to get at least two war authorizations off the books. But we have seen over and over how other authorizations, in particular the 2001 authorizations, have been stretched beyond their reasonable interpretation to cover more and more action abroad. And then when it comes to our alliance structure, I would argue that presidents today rarely enter into treaties because they have found other ways to cement alliances that don't necessitate coming to Congress. Why go through all the trouble of negotiating a treaty and getting it signed off by the United States Senate when you can just sell a couple billion dollars in arms and have those arms sales bind that nation to you just as effectively as a treaty? Now, we don't have mutual defense treaties with the UAE or Saudi Arabia or Morocco, but they are bound to us in one way, shape, or form by a dizzying array of arms sales, highlighted by the $100 billion sale proposed by President Trump or the massive F-35 and Reaper drone sale to UAE that was just greenlighted by President Biden. Now, these sales don't have to be approved by Congress, and thus the executive branch can do the business of alliance building without congressional approval. And so we come to the legislation we're gonna talk about today. Um, this is the National Security Powers Act, which is introduced by myself, Senator Lee and Senator Sanders. And our belief is that this piece of legislation can reset this balance. Just briefly, uh, let me explain how it does so on both the question of war making and arms sales. On war making, first and foremost, it makes explicit what I believe to be implicit in the construction of the war making power of the Constitution. That if the president does not have authorization for a particular military activity, then he cannot use public funds to carry out that activity. Now, both in the Constitution and in the War Powers Act itself, I would argue that uh, that is stipulated, our national, securities, uh, our national Security Powers Act makes that absolutely clear, that without authorization from Congress, uh, the executive branch cannot act. In fact, they lose funding authority to do that. We squeeze the timelines to make sure that Congress gets in the game at an earlier basis. Right now, the War Powers Act gives the president some significant leeway to begin substantial military activity without ever coming to Congress. It better defines what war is. 
Right now, that is left to almost the complete open interpretation of the executive branch. The National Security Powers Act says we're going to define in statute what hostilities are. So you can never again get a situation like Yemen, where refueling planes and giving targeting advice does not constitute hostilities in the administration's mind. Um, on arms sales, uh, the change we make is a simple one, but it is incredibly meaningful. Right now, the president doesn't need congressional approval to sign off on an arms sale, but Congress has the power to disapprove. But that resolution of disapproval, as you all know, has to be passed by both houses and then has to be signed by the very president who is proposing the sale, meaning you need to have a treaty majority, a two-thirds majority in the House and the Senate in order to ever effectuate a resolution of disapproval because it is inevitably going to be vetoed by the president. Instead, for the most important arms sales, we reverse that presumption. Not for every arms sales, but for the big arms sales, especially to the non-treaty allies, to the uh, nations where the arms sale is effectively binding the United States to that country. We require that the president get proactive congressional assent, just like he or she would need for a treaty or for a declaration of war. The same for the big arms sales, because in practice and in principle, they have the same impact often uh, as a treaty. And so I'm looking forward to continuing to broaden the coalition of interest groups uh, and uh, members of Congress who are working on this legislation. There's no reason for this to be a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. I'm proudly introducing this uh, piece of legislation in the middle of a Democratic presidency because I believe that this balance needs to be reset no matter who's in the White House. And at a moment when this country is having a pretty open conversation about the efficacy of democracy, we have to understand that this is part and parcel of that conversation. Americans are wondering whether democracy is still relevant to their lives anymore. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that their economic existence is just um, much tougher than they ever expected it to be, and they don't see Congress stepping up and doing something meaningful about it. But it also has to do with the fact that increasingly they see their sons and daughters, their neighbors, their lives being put at risk overseas, their taxpayer dollars being used to fund massive engagements in places of the world completely unfamiliar to Americans, and they don't feel like they have any input over that. They see these big decisions being made about going into war, coming out of war, but yet they never get a chance to engage with their member of Congress on that matter. They never see a debate happening in the United States Congress. And so you can't fault them when they start to wonder whether democracy still works in the way that they were taught in school, right? The power to declare war, vested in the Congress, vested in the people, but yet I've never been asked by my member of Congress, at least not since 20 years ago, whether or not war is something that I approve of. And so I'll leave you with a story um, to effectuate that point, to hammer it home. I think one of the most consequential moments of President Obama's presidency was the day that he decided on an outdoor walk with his chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, that he would refrain from launching airstrikes in Syria until he had won congressional approval. Now, hawks and war cheerleaders saw this as a sign of weakness, as a sign of indecision, and they urged him to take that fight to Syria without congressional authorization. But I saw that decision as a declaration of strength, the strength of our Constitution, that 
this document, this series of words on a paper could limit a president to declare war without coming to Congress first. And I saw its impact. People sometimes lament that Americans are not invested in matters of national security, that they care much more about kitchen table, bread and butter economic issues, but they're, they're detached from conversations about war and peace or foreign policy. I, I will tell you that is not the case, not when it matters. So it was Labor Day weekend, 2013, when President Obama said he was going to ask Congress for a vote. And I can count on one hand the number of moments that I will call supermarket moments. Supermarket moments for me are moments as an elected official where you are at the supermarket and something matters so much to your constituents that they don't wait to sort of come up to you and enter into a civil conversation. They yell it to you, their opinion from across the supermarket, right? It matters so much to them. Um, that was one of those moments. Labor Day weekend, I was home all weekend in Connecticut and wherever I went, people had an opinion about the wisdom of entering into war with Syria. I will tell you, almost to a person, they wanted me to vote against that authorization that they had had enough of engagements in the Middle East. And so to me, that is a sign of the thirst that Americans have when it comes to input into these big questions of national security. And I will admit that these decisions, whether or not to declare war, whether to sell arms to other countries, they're tougher and harder than they were generations ago. The enemies are harder to define today. They're always changing and metastasizing. Uh, peace treaties are non-existent, so it's sometimes hard to tell when a war ends, when an enemy is defeated. But Madison and our founders believed that forcing a public debate around matters of war and peace and national security would make this country safer. They were right. And I'm so glad that a lot of people in this town are committed to reviewing the National Security Powers Act because I really believe um, that if we reinvest Congress through this reform of our statutes, statutes with uh, the power um, that our founders believed should rest in the Article I branch, this country will indeed, this world will indeed be a safer place. So thank you the Cato Institute for hosting me today. Chris Murphy is a Democratic U.S. Senator from Connecticut. New Rochelle, New York's elected leaders recognized that they were getting in their own way when it came to housing development. And unlike virtually all other cities with the same problem, New Rochelle adopted an innovative way to get government largely out of the way to lower the costs and uncertainty surrounding new housing. Patrick Tuhi of the Better Cities Project discusses how they did it and how other cities can adopt that model. So New Rochelle is this uh, community about 20 miles outside of New York City. It is uh, wealthy. It, there was a lot of demand, but the city council was getting in its own way. They hadn't approved uh, a new development in, in maybe uh, six or eight years. And it was because, again, the city council would, would nitpick. And I understand that city councils are often elected to do something. They view it as their job to kind of police development and make sure that their constituents are getting what their constituents actually want. But it had become kind of a critical mass. And the mayor and the city council, to their credit, realized we're getting in our own way. We want development in the abstract. 
But when somebody comes to us with a concrete example, we pick it apart. And as a result, we haven't seen any new development. So they partnered with uh, a developer um, to understand what were all the obstacles, what were the problems that developers were having to getting to guess. And so the, uh, the, the developer basically said, we will pay for all of the uh, the planning, the investigation, the the, the process of, of streamlining. And in return, the city will come up with a large, long-term plan of what they want. It involved visiting with all the different community actors to find out, you know, maybe we want affordable housing, maybe we want act, uh, community centers, all the various things. And they created a uh, static menu. And part of the different parts of town. Again, this was only 5% of the city they were talking about, but it was the downtown center. And they said, you know, and this area will allow for height restrictions of 10 or 20 stories. And then on the outward blocks, it'll come down. But the result was a menu where a developer came in and say, all right, I'm going to develop this particular parcel. I understand the rules uh, of the game allow me to build 10 stories. But if I include a community center, or if I agree to have some um, beneath the market housing, then I can add two more stories or I can add four more stories. And what was absolutely important for the developer and, and all the developers was that they knew the rules going in. They had pre-approval given these circumstances. And so the city saw an awful lot of development, much more than they anticipated. And it wasn't because the city adopted some sort of libertarian dream of there are no rules, go to town, do what you want. It's because they simply said to the developers, we're willing to work with you and we will come up with the rules that are the same for every developer and that are predictable. And that's what developers want. So developers could just look at what was ahead of them, uh, as you said, a menu and make decisions based on that. And that is just so different from uh, the experience of developers and even people who just own a plot of land and want to build a house on it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, and, and having to seek permission and understanding that the, whatever group of fallible human beings were going to be making <laughs> yes. these decisions would be making them on a case-by-case -case ad hoc basis. I, I mean, th that seems tailor-made for uh, corruption. Yes. Tailor-made doesn't even begin. It almost seems intentionally designed to invite corruption. And, and one of my questions to the, to the authors, and, and, and this report was written by Salim Firth at Mercatus and Philip Orton, who was one of the, uh, the developers involved, um, is it was the, the ability of that city council to realize that their role in creating a problem and their, the community's role. Emily Hamilton at Mercatus has referred to this as the, the vitocracy, which is you enable everybody along the way. Everyone means well, but everybody just wants to say no. And the brilliance of this was that they got buy-in in the abstract. Yes, we want development. Yes, we want high rise. Yes, we want density. And then when the developer came along with the actual concrete plan, there was no opportunity to say, oh, I don't like the color. I don't like uh, that you don't have more windows facing north. You know, all the things that people nitpick. Because sometimes that community involvement encourages uh, negativity. Right? You sit around and you're just like, I, how can I figure out a way to dislike this plan? Because people bought in in the abstract, when the development actually happened, they already felt, well, I'd given buy-in. And if there were kind of nitpicky, it wasn't enough to stop the project. And, uh, and you say it invites corruption, the standard, to, the status quo invites corruption. It, it almost seems to be, it was designed to allow politicians to pick and choose winners, to pick and choose their buddies, and to stand in the way of people who maybe didn't make a, 
contribution, and it is it is crazy, but it requires the local governing authority to understand that they need to get out of the way. And and New Rochelle was rare, perhaps unique in being able to do that. Yeah. So uh, for local people, would be residents of a community, they don't. There's nobody speaking for them. That's exactly right. Uh, and for incumbents within a community, they can essentially costlessly prevent people from finding housing within their own, who they will never meet. That's right. And uh, projects to provide housing to people who want it and want and are willing to pay for it. They've gotten out of the pool and they're pulling up the ladder behind them. And they're saying, I'm here, like exactly like you said, I want to be the last resident in this community. But then they lose out on economic growth, uh, you know, municipal revenue of seeing growth. I understand people maybe want to move in and be the last one in, but when they are, nobody else is investing in their community. Nobody else is bringing jobs, bringing development. And so it's a, it's a conflict between the two. But again, the way we've built the system now is nobody has an interest to say yes. Either it's the city employees who don't want to take the risk on yes, it's easier to say no. Um, or it's the people who look at a building and say, I don't like that color. I don't like how many windows you have. I don't like how close it is to the sidewalk or it's too far from the street. All the crazy reasons. And I'm sure if you had developers in here, they would have war stories of these community advisory meetings. Raleigh, North Carolina is one of the first cities in the country, maybe the only so far, that has actually stripped the power of their community advisory uh, commissions and is examining how can we involve the community's opinion without creating a special interest of these particular groups that always come in, always say no, exactly like you say, because they're the last ones in, they want to protect their investment and they don't want other outsiders to come in and, and live in their community. It, it really is a problem. And, and, and having studied economic development for so long, one of my frustrations is that, again, assume the best on behalf of people in cities. They adopt all these regulations. They adopt all these standards which drives up cost. And then the developer comes along and says, it's too expensive to build in your community, so I want taxpayer subsidies. And so the city creates two problems out of nothing. One, they make it expensive to build, and two, now we're gonna subsidize development. If, they, if the purpose of opportunity zones or TIF was simply to say, we're not gonna give you money, but you can apply and we will remove all these barriers, you would see development and the taxpayers wouldn't have to pay for it. What New Rochelle did, and the study's available on our website, what New Rochelle did was revolutionary in that they said, we will work with you. We want to maintain community standards. We want to have a voice in development, but we are not going to make you come back to us every step of the process. And I think it's brilliant. It is, it is again, maybe not the libertarian dream, but it is, it is much closer than we've seen elsewhere. What's the takeaway for other cities? Uh, have conscientious members of city council. I mean, that sounds nice. But. <laughs> you sound cynical. Uh, I think what they can do is say, look, are we seeing the growth that we think we deserve? Every city will say, no. Are we standing in the way? I don't think you have to be a new Rochelle. You don't have to be 20 miles outside of Manhattan to have an opportunity to see improvement. Talk with the people who want to develop, identify what the problems are and say, how can we maintain a community standard in development and yet let developers do what they want to do, right? They want to build, they want to invest, they want to pay taxes. Why are we getting in their way? Patrick Tuhi is the co-founder and policy director of the Better Cities Project.
The FDA has a massive impact on our food supply, but it's not clear that the agency's statutory mandate is something it can or necessarily should execute. Economist Richard Williams is author of Fixing Food, an FDA insider unravels the myths and the solutions. We spoke in November for the Cato Daily Podcast. You were, as far as you know, as far as anyone knows, uh, the first economist at the FDA, which seems kind of surprising, really, that that uh, an agency with that much scope would not have economists at least attempting to inform their decisions about uh, regulation. So why uh, did it take the FDA so long to get some economists in there? Well, I think it was because like all regulatory agencies, they had to be forced into doing it. And what forced them originally was Jimmy Carter's executive order uh, saying that we had to look at the benefits and costs of uh, our big regulations. And then obviously President Reagan came in and he doubled down on that and said, not only do I want you to look at the benefits and costs, I want benefits to exceed costs. And he put in OIRA, Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, to oversee all those regulations. Give us a sense of the contours of the FDA's powers over Americans' food. Well, of course, as you know, it's not just food. Um, FDA does regulate 80% of pretty much of all foods. It's all foods with the exception of meat and poultry and some eggs. Those are regulated by USDA. Uh, and in terms of their scope and power, FDA has been called the most powerful regulatory agency in the world. So what does that look like for products that we purchase off the shelf? So a lot of the products that you purchase off the shelf uh, are pre-approved. So in the food arena, that would be all food and color additives, including things that go in like the new proteins, for example. But then they also have the post-market regulations. And in foods, that's the bulk of what they do, as opposed to drugs, which is all pre-market approval. So uh, I guess with a powerful regulatory agency like that, what do we not understand about the degree to which, and, and it, it, feel free to include any specifics, how the FDA's regulatory authority has actually altered our food supply? Well, it's altered it in many ways. I think one of the ways, that, that, and this is the one that concerns me most, is that a lot of the regulations that FDA has don't actually work. Uh, so, for example, in the last uh, well over a decade, FDA has been going to Congress once a year and saying, one out of six people are getting sick from food poisoning. You need to increase our budget, which Congress usually does. Uh, and yet uh, they say the same thing year after year and nothing gets done. In the meantime, uh, firms are busy following FDA regulations, which takes them away from doing things that they might be doing to make their food safe. Like what? Well, so, for example, FDA inspects food plants an average of once every six years. Food manufacturers inspect themselves in some cases weekly. They either hire people to inspect them or they bring in other people to inspect them. And when I talk to food manufacturers and how they react to particularly the big FDA regulations, they say, we have to invest time and resources to comply with those regulations, even though we know for our particular plants, they're not going to help at all. So this is a type of risk-risk analysis. They know what makes their problems uh uh, their their uh, foods have problems, and those are the things that they want to focus on. 
So uh, foodborne diseases, you mentioned uh, that this happens every year uh, to millions of Americans. You note in your book that uh, the FDA told Congress uh, in their 2011 budget request that 48 million people get foodborne diseases each year. That hasn't really changed. And as you note, uh, food producers uh, are inspecting themselves uh, more regularly than the FDA can. And it's it, it's really... Uh, to hear to hear you tell it, it really is an impossible task, one where the public receives this assurance of uh, perhaps dubious quality that the FDA can uh, execute on its mandate to engage in these kinds of inspections. And then uh, the, the downside is that they cannot possibly make good on that assurance given their, well, given perhaps even just the nature of the agency. Yeah, the way I look at it is, you know, FDA is our oldest public health uh, organization, and they're still looking at problems as though it's 1906 when FDA was formed. And back then, the problem was there were filthy plants, um, as was identified in the jungle, with rats running over meat. And manufacturers were intentionally adding poisons to, to foods to make them look better or last better. Uh, and so regulations were the answer. Clean up the plants and make uh, food companies stop adding intentional poisons. That Those aren't our problems today. Today, our problems are ubiquitous pathogens like E. coli and salmonella, and the fact that we have 42% of our population being obese, and that's expected to go to 50% by 2030. Has FDA regulation made food better or worse? It depends on when you're talking about. Originally, what FDA did when those problems were big and obvious and the solutions were big and obvious, FDA did forced plants to clean up. In addition, uh, in the 1920s, one of the big problems was milk. And if you recall, in the old days, milk was simply, it went out on a wagon that was unrefrigerated. It was left on somebody's porch and it was just warm or he almost hot the whole day. So milk was a huge problem. Back around that time, FDA brought in pasteurization. And that was a gigantic improvement in food safety. And pasteurization for all products was a gigantic improvement. But that was then, and this is now. Uh, and FDA has kind of run out of solutions. However, the good thing is, even though FDA has run out of solutions, innovators around the world are coming up with better solutions. Richard Williams is an economist who worked for 27 years at the Food and Drug Administration. He is author of the new book, Fixing Food, an FDA insider unravels the myths and the solutions. How free is your state? The Cato Institute's Freedom in the 50 States report is one of the most comprehensive and definitive sources on how public policies in each American state impact an individual's economic, social, and personal freedoms. The 2021 edition improves on that methodology for weighting and combining state and local policies to create a comprehensive index, including a new section analyzing how state responses to COVID-19 have affected freedom since the pandemic began. Check out how your state fares at freedominthe50states.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Happy New Year, and I'll talk to you again next month.